Welcome. It's uh, we're looking at Matthew twenty four tonight, and I hope that I have not been shy about. Maybe uh, I have tried at least to show my hand when it comes to um, the end to which I want to teach. You know, the the end, the purpose of teaching. And I'd really like to see people flourish by loving God and loving others. I'd really like to see people flourish as followers of Jesus. And um, largely that goal is met in um, Christianity today with a, uh, when that goal sort of hits prophecy, the goal, it tends to be we need to demystify prophecy by breaking it down to simply the constraints of evangelicalism or the constraints of Christendom. And so it's, yes, there's quite a bit of prophecy. It's complicated. It's hard to know. People pick, pick dates. And so what you really need to do is just demystify it, go, hey, it's about the Christian life. We need to love Jesus. He's coming back for you, and he's going to judge the living and the dead. And that's what you need to know. Well, that certainly is the constraints of the creeds. The creedal constraint, if you want to be a creedal Christian, um, which might be hand-in-hand with if you want to be a Christian. Hard to say, but if you're at least the Apostles' Creed and you want to hold to the 12 points of the Apostles' Creed, is God, the Bible, theology, or God, the Bible, Jesus, salvation, sin, end times. I mean, just basic Christianity. Then what you need to know is that Jesus Christ is coming back. He's going to judge the living and the dead. And uh, he's going to reign. Uh, But I think that flourishing actually demands a closer look than that. And I think that that arises actually out of the text. Matthew 16 is a real turning point in the, in the book of Matthew, where you have 4 to 16 is this whole, from that time on, Jesus began to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And then beginning in Matthew 16, Jesus really starts pointing towards his cross and saying, this is what the kingdom is going to be. This is the ushering in the kingdom of God is the cross of Christ, and the cross then is the kingdom, it is flourishing, it is your life. And then he gets right into, take up your cross and follow me, in verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Verse 24 of chapter 16. And then if whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And then here's his motivation right here. What does it look like to follow Jesus? Deny yourself. Follow me. Why would you do that? Right there. For the Son of Man is is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. And he ties... Prophecy, and you see that again and again in scriptures, but he ties prophecy to your sanctification and your flourishing. Uh, I think 1 John 3, 3 is a good example of that, where it talks about uh, being made holy by this revelation of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Um, and so I really wanted to anchor that in Matthew. That's why it's just such a strong impulse to get it right, or to at least... Get it close. I mean, we'll try our best uh, to get some prophecy right because uh, it's, it has a huge sanctifying uh, effect in our life. It's, it's Jesus' motivation for um, the discipleship life. And so we get right into 
the passage that we've kind of hit along this path, and that's Matthew 24. And it's actually generally known, Dad called it the Olivet Discourse, which is to say, words spoken on the Mount of Olives. There you go. I demystified that for you, didn't I? Uh, he, he goes up onto the Mount of Olives. And more ink, and this is a common statement, you'll see it a lot, but more ink has been spilled, which is a cool, flourishing kind of word, isn't it? More ink has been spilled on this passage in the Gospels and its, um, and its uh, equivalents in Mark and Luke than any other passage in the Gospels. More things have been published about this chapter, and 24 and 25 actually, than any other chapter. I mean, than any issue of Jesus' death and resurrection, any issue of the birth narrative, any of the parables. These chapters have drawn more publishing than any other. More scholars and amateurs and people like me who are below that somewhere have waded in on this subject than on any other passage in, in the Gospels, any of the Gospels which is just unbelievable. Now, mind you, that isn't entirely significant for this reason. The fact that more has been published on that has a lot to do with when people started discussing end times theology. Now, a lot of theology got worked out earlier on in the church. And not to say that this wasn't talked about, but not to the extent that it is now. And so, really, people began to work out issues of Jesus Christ, God the Father, salvation, sin, the church, angels, demons. These things got pounded out before the printing press. And so you hit the printing press, and then a couple hundred years later, you really hit mass publishing. And then now, if you were to read 24 hours a day at a quick pace in one discipline, and you started today in 20 years, you would actually be another million pages behind than you were today. Because so much is being published in each discipline that you're actually further behind even if you're reading all the time because you can't read fast enough to even stay up to date. So that, it's kind of like saying more papers have been written on the Civil War than any of the other event in American history. Well, that might just be because people start writing research papers in seventh grade. You know, like the same year that you start studying Civil War or Ohio history, whatever it is, is also the same year you start writing your four-page research papers. So it might not be the most relevant fact. But it certainly is telling about people right now are focusing on these passages. Um, it doesn't actually tell us... All that to say, it doesn't actually tell us why these particular passages are grabbing people's attention. Why Matthew 24? Well, Matthew 24 is really grabbing people's attention because it's where... It's actually largely because of proof texting. People will point to a per particular passage and say, this is a proof text. It proves you wrong or it proves me right. One or the other, I'm happy with either. If it proves you wrong or if it proves me right, we'll go to this passage. And this is it. This one passage can blow you out of the water or prove me impenetrable. And not every eschatological, that is to say, end times view, uses this passage as a proof text. And largely by that, I mean, if you hold to, and we'll, we'll talk just briefly here as an introduction, to what those particular disciplines or particular camps, as they were, are. But the all-millennial camp doesn't go here very often. This isn't their cup of tea. Sometimes I do, because they happen to be preterists, but that didn't make any sense to most of you, and there's no reason it should. But, this particular passage is a proof text for people, and they go, this proves you wrong, or this proves me right, so let's go to Matthew 24, and there's a couple groups that really converge right here, 
and it's like West Liberty is where the Makachi and the Mad collide, or whatever their cool statement is. Right here is where your big dog theological camps when it comes to end times collide. And they're like, this is New Testament, this is now revealed, this is clear, this tells us what we need to know, and that means that you're wrong. <laughs> Basically, end game here, you're wrong. Uh, and so actually I want to just lay out for you a couple of the groups that tend to do that, including my own, you know. And the reason that's important is because of this. I don't think seminary, graduate school, even original languages are at all necessary for understanding the text of Scripture. This, I think, shouldn't be a shock to you because you have other teachers, like, I don't know, my dad, for one, who actually knows more of Scripture than I do, has taught more Scripture than I, and I'll be honest with you, didn't go to seminary. Didn't, in fact, go to undergraduate, didn't do all those things. Didn't, he did better than I did in high school, though, I think. Did you do better? What, what was your rank? Fifth? Yeah, he did better than I did in high school. Yeah, he did mine. I don't know. There was There was six, but Bill didn't really count. Uh, and so, seminary, I don't think is necessary. But the reason it, it becomes uh, important is because of the volume of information that you're getting already. You've heard people's pet theories for years. Somebody was wrong five generations ago, and he was a mentor to somebody who was a mentor to somebody who was a mentor to somebody who mentored your favorite pastor on the radio, and you heard his theory. And it becomes actually, graduate work actually just becomes a means of kind of clearing away some of that. No, 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 let the text speak for itself. No, no, that's not the text you're hearing. That's what somebody told you a long time ago. Let the, you need to get into the text. Go to the text. And so, inevitably, we start taking these theological camps and going, bang, put them on the text. There it is, right there. Well, not that helpful. And it's going to happen. You're going to do it. You're going to take some viewpoint that you don't even want to question and put it on there because for some reason we're afraid, we evangelicals are a little afraid of questioning things that we know to be true, that have to be true. You know, my grandma believed it, and it has to be true, and I don't want to question it. And she's usually right, but it just becomes this danger, kind of danger. I don't want to question. And so a lot of times that's good, you know, like, hey, it's, it's all right to have the same views as your grandparents. I think there was a senator in Minnesota who just got famous for saying something like that. The youngest state senator just said something like, it's okay to have the same views as your grandma. Uh, cool young lady from Montana, I think, actually. Uh, but... Some things you just got to question, and so hopefully we won't have to have a particular camp view shape our view, even though we might find that a camp view is right. And so I want to like spell out for you just a couple of these camps, so you know who the who the players are, who's bringing an interpretation to the table, and that way at least you know if. You don't have to choose one of the above interpretations, but you know it's out there. So, hey, I think it's this, but maybe I'm just thinking that because I've always been told that. So, the major players are, um, and it's a little different in this passage than in, like, the book of Revelation. If you get to the book of Revelation, you start listing the major players, and you say the futurists, the preterists, the idealists, and the historists. These are your four major players in Revelation. 
And that is to say, what's, what's going on here is still going to happen? Futurist. What's going on here already happened? Preterist. What's going on here? We have no idea. It's just symbolic language. And what the major point is, Jesus is coming back. And so we're not even going to teach the text. We're going to refer to the text. That's your idealist. You know? Hard to say. It doesn't mean that they're wrong because they don't disagree, because they disagree with each other. They tend to disagree with each other because there aren't a lot of constraints on the text then when it's strictly ideal. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're wrong, though. Just because you disagree with people in your own camp doesn't mean you're wrong because all the camps do that. And we disagree with each other in here, and it doesn't make any one of us is wrong. Some of us are wrong. Uh, I mean, it does mean that. The contradictory views, so somebody's wrong, but it doesn't mean you're all wrong. And then there's the uh, historist, which is to say, some people look at the book of Revelation and see human history mapped onto that. Like, this is just telling us what has happened over the years. And it's similar to the preterist, but the preterist says, this is all real, this is all going down, this happened in, you know... Antiochus, the Greek guy, or Titus, the Roman guy, or Bar Kokhba, or whatever that is, that happened then. And it's particular, and it applies. Whereas the historist is saying, in a general sense, you know, the early church was like this. And in a general sense, the medieval church was kind of like, you know, the dragon, and the Roman Catholic church, and, you know. And then, more modern times, it's kind of like the millennial reign, and it's Whatever. There's not a lot of constraints there either. But, um, obviously I'm showing my hand a little bit here. But, that's your revelation views. Now it gets a little more particular when you get to, to Matthew 24 and 25. Because you got the futurists, but the futurists don't all agree in Matthew 24 and 25. Futurist just says, what's going on here is still going to happen. Now that starts to break down a little bit. There's some people who are, what are called, pre-tribulational rapture. They think that Jesus is going to come back meet his church in the air, in the clouds, and take them to heaven. And it's, um, take them to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this arises largely from the writings of Paul, but it fits nicely in with, according to the futurist, pre-millennial, pre-tribulational futurist. That is, there's going to be a millennium. There's, it says right there in Revelation 20 and 21, we've got a millennium, there's going to be a thousand years, and that just, that's not new revelation, that's just giving a timeline to the promise of the kingdom that is littered throughout the Old Testament. And not only that, but there's a time before that when Israel's purified, and the church isn't part of that, and we need to have a clear divide between Israel and the church. And right now, Israel is a political, social, blessed entity that isn't just God's people as part of the church, but God's particular people with a country and a leader and a promise that's theirs. So pre-tribulationists take that as sort of their point. And then they're going to look at Matthew 24 and 25 and see a lot of events that are going to happen in the future, specifically in the time of this cleansing of Israel. So the church doesn't come into play here very much at all. Now you have what's called a post-tribulationalist. Now this is, this one gets a little fun. Because they are some of the strongest advocates of there are promises yet for Israel, there's a kingdom, there's a millennial reign of Christ, God's coming back to reign, Jesus sits on David's throne, he is David's heir to the throne, he's the Messiah, he's littered throughout the Old Testament, and you start reading the works of probably my favorite author of hermeneutics books, Old Testament books, 
Old Testament ethics, the Messiah in the Old Testament. He's writing top quality Old Testament premillennial writing. And I disagree with him about his tribulation standpoint. And that's Walt Kaiser Jr. You can write that name down. I've called him for the last 10 years now. He's my boy. Walt Kaiser, he writes it. I want to read it. He's got the only book on hermeneutics that says there's meaning in the text. I kid you not, the last 50 years of evangelicals writing hermeneutics, how to study your Bible, he is the only one that says there's meaning in the text. That's scary when you see seminary graduates coming out with any other book going, yeah, well, there's not meaning in the text. You know, that's every book they've got on their shelf. Every one, except Walt Kaiser's. I haven't read all of them, but... There's not many out there. If there's more than that one, I don't know about it. So this guy is solid. He's writing Old Testament ethics, the book on Old Testament ethics. He's writing the Messiah in the Old Testament, which I think Dad has. Donnie got, means solid work on the Messiah. He's writing the uses of the Old Testament in the New Testament. You want to get a clear handle on the uses of the Old Testament in the New Testament? Walt Kaiser's book. Solid stuff. Great reference to have when people start questioning the use of the Old Testament. He's the only one out there basically writing that they're using it in context and trying to find the context. Not the only one. There's several, but he predominantly. But he disagrees. Right now, he still sees Israel and the church. Now, how do we bless Israel? Basically, his question is, how do we bless Israel now? It's within the context of the church. And so the church and Israel are going to go through a time of tribulation together. And then there's going to be a rapture. The church is going to be united with Christ. And then immediately Jesus is going to come back and we're going to usher into the tribulation. He runs into some sort of particular difficulties with the timeline then. But right now he's more, it's, there's some words, I'll say them, you don't care. Say what? Usher in the tribulation or usher in the millennium? Oh, usher in the millennium, sorry. Rapture, usher in the millennium. All kind of together. Bang, 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 bang. Uh, which might, I think he might take the end of Daniel and 1,260, 1,365. Um, and so he's got, he differs from me on that. And, you know, that always kind of makes you pause and go, okay, smartest guy I know, thinks that things are different than I think they are. All right, Whew, okay. Um, hit the brakes. Uh, and so that ends up being what's called progressive dispensational or historical premillennial, and honestly, those are separate camps, and I don't see the difference between the two of them. In my head, it's a distinction without a difference. If you're ever interested in that, you can ask somebody else, because I don't know the difference. Um, so you've got that camp, which is similar, but they're going to see some different. They're going to see the church in passages that a pre-tribulational guy is just not going to see the church. They're going to see, no, this is things are a little more woven together now, and pre-trib people... Uh, they kind of start, it got, that's where it gets tough. How distinct are, can you say that we're supposed to be kingdom people if you're pre-trib, pre-mill? Different, I mean, if you read uh, through the Bible with um, J. Vernon McGee, no, you're not kingdom people. If you read um, uh, President of Dallas and... Uh, no, more recently... Who wrote Dispensationalism? Swindoll? Swindoll. Swindoll wrote a book called Dispensationalism. He would probably say, in a broad sense, you're kingdom people, like Colossians 2, you know. But you get into Sermon on the Mount, not really, I mean, it's kind of, 
you need to shape your life a little bit by it, obviously. But it gets tricky when it gets down to the nitty-gritty for the pre-trib guy. How much can you apply the Sermon on the Mount to your life? Because that's the kingdom sermon. And for him, the kingdom has been postponed. So it's not there. See, I don't, I don't go that way. I go the kingdom of God is given to another people. It's different than it maybe would have been. I don't know if different is the right word. But the kingdom of God is taken away from you and given to a people bearing the fruit of it. I don't see postponement. There's not a kingdom offered to Israel, taken back. It's going to come back for you. There's going to be a time for that instantiation of the kingdom. But right now, we are kingdom people because we need to bear the fruit of it. And I think it's there. I think that it weds, and I don't have it all figured out in the details either, but I see more harmony than, like, Swindoll or Walvert. But I tend to be in their camp as opposed to progressive dispensational camp because I don't know how you get around a pre-tribulational rapture. I just can't see it. How can you ever rapture another? So that's technical, but it becomes important because you get into this text and it's like, well, you're either one camp or the other. You've got to choose. Uh, and then here's the, here's the big one for Matthew 24, and this one is called preterist. A preterist is a preterist just is a cool like Latin term that means past. They're pastist, already happened people. They look at Matthew 24 and go, is that not Latin? Prater, Prater, Prater? She says it means wrong. Oh, it means wrong. <laughs> Ouch. It's, well, that's, it's Latin for past and it's in fact Greek for wrong. Yeah, clearly. And a preterist is going to tell you this happened. In fact, they're going to tell you that's true because of Matthew 24 and 25. And Luke, Luke 13, right? Because of those two passages, and you read Luke, and if you don't already have a theological camp and you just read it, you might think destruction of the temple, end of the world. I mean, it's pretty tightly woven together there in Luke. This one, I, I think they fail pretty miserably in Matthew 24. But you get to Luke and you're like, whew, man, I don't know where you start drawing the lines there. It's tough. Uh, but it's not the only passage on prophecy, so it can't be like the soul it's, it references Daniel just like everybody else, and anything that references Daniel loses in a hurry because preterists do not write commentaries on the book of Daniel. There's two pastoral ones, and they start just skipping passages because it doesn't work. It's just like, uh, yeah, well, I mean, it turns out the Greeks had to crucify Jesus, so, uh, well, that probably didn't happen. So they just kind of skip. Uh, yeah, it's tough. Preterists in the book of Daniel, it gets, it gets tough. Um, so but the preterists are looking at Matthew 24 and going, well, maybe it's hard for us in Daniel, but it's hard for you here. Because it talks about destruction of the temple, end of the world, all tied together. So a full preterist actually steps outside the bounds of evangelicalism. Because he tells you, he looks at Matthew 24 and says, everything happened. Everything. Jesus Christ came back. Not, you know, like we think he's going to come back. He came back in judgment. He came back for the Jews in judgment. Now he's coming back again for the church. But he came, the Jews are done. Everything in the Old Testament is fulfilled in 70 AD or 135 or some difficult number there. The, the 70 weeks of Daniel came to an end in 70 AD. That's done. Everything. And if you're full preterist, that means, I mean, there's cool stuff in the Old Testament like coming back, establishing the kingdom. Resurrection of the dead, everything happened in 70 AD. And you start looking at history and going, 
when was the resurrection of the dead and the return of Jesus and the establishment of the kingdom and the, the stone carved without human hands crashes the end of the world of the Gentiles and grows into a kingdom and fills the earth? That gets a little tricky. But you read this passage and they're like, that's what it says. Look at this temple, Jesus. See this temple, these wonderful buildings. And he says, no two stones are going to be laid onto another. And you're like, 70 AD, and I'm coming back. And you go, um, well, I think those are different times. <laughs> you know, but you can see where the preterist starts going, well, you got to play in our court now. Like, this is, this is our territory, so deal with it. And so that's what a preterist is saying. Most people who are preterists are what are called partial preterists. And they think, God's done with the Jews, everything's fulfilled, but not everything. I mean, you know, the resurrection of the dead didn't happen, and it's, there's some stuff yet coming. And they, they're endeavoring not to step outside of bounds of the evangelical. And there's some wonderful evangelical Christians who are preterists and wrong, you know, clearly. But it doesn't mean that they're not wonderful evangelical Christians by any means. Now, if you're a full-on, like, total preterist, you actually do step outside the bounds, you know. It doesn't mean you're not Christian. But you step outside the bounds of evangelical Christianity. Whatever that is, you're outside of that. Um, but I mean, a lot of people are happy about being outside the bounds of evangelical Christianity. I mean, for instance, the Orthodox Church and the, most of the Roman Catholic Church are kind of happy to be like, well, yeah, you can have your thing, but that's not us. Um, and most of the, what are called, socially or morally or politically liberal church, um, or even theologically liberal. And finally, the idealist. And the idealist we talked about in Revelation, they're going to look at Matthew 24 and see a lot of what they see in Revelation. This is illustrative. This is... Uh, this kind of thing happens. This end of the world. It's probably mostly God talking about 70 AD, but this is the kind of thing. We always need to be ready for Jesus to come back. He's going to come back. Things are going to be rough before He comes back. The world's only going to get worse. Uh, they, everybody agrees the world gets worse and worse and worse and worse and Jesus comes back and this is, this is what it's getting at. They don't spend a lot of time in Matthew 24. There's not much reason to dwell on it. You just kind of, yeah, it's there. And, uh, and largely that's what you have the church. If there was a, a poll taken today of what camp had the most people in it, idealists would win by, I don't know, 80% majority in the Christian, Christian church. I mean, probably. I mean, you got... Europe and Asia and most of Africa and I mean, though more and more are pre-mill in uh, some of the developing world too, but I mean, largely it's going to be ideal. Um, and here's the trouble with all that. People think that choosing a view is just that. You look at the views and you go, well, I got to pick one because, I mean, it's all been explored. I got to pick a view and stick to that. It's not the text giving rise to view, it's, now it's just these views are out there and you gotta pick one. And a convincing speaker or a wonderful historical Christian figure who held to a particular view and you, you're like, well, I really like him. Uh, I hate to disagree with him, so, you know, I'll go with that. And it gets tough because we really like people and we really like their teaching and you might even like me and I could well be wrong and that's trouble. That's difficult and that's why teachers get held to a high standard because I can really just lead you down a wrong path. Um, so I'll try, I'll endeavor to not do that. And now, it's especially difficult to let the text speak for itself, because my dad already said, 
Jesus gets into this, and he alludes to, clearly, everybody kind of agrees to these things. He alludes to Zechariah and Ezekiel, straight quotes from Psalms, straight quotes from Daniel, and quotes from Isaiah, alludes to Joel, maybe quotes from Joel. I mean, he wades in deep right away. And most prophetic passages in the New Testament do exactly that. And so this whole idealist view of going, well, you know, you just kind of put things together and it's just all kind of this. They think that's precedent for that. Yeah, it's just you draw from these texts and you kind of go, yes, the world is ending, like the desolation that's coming and that, that applies here and just kind of pick and choose. This applies and that applies. And they're like, hey, here's the precedent for it. That's what Jesus does. Hey, the world's ending. It's kind of like Daniel and, and Joel and Isaiah and Psalm, you know, those passages and it, and I contend, well, it's, just, it's not that. Like, he goes to Psalm 118.12, and he's like, it's this right here. Psalm 118.12, this is going to happen. Go back, look at it, dive into it, then you'll know a little bit more. And all right, now I quoted Daniel 9. I expect you to go back and look at it and understand what Daniel was talking about. Because I'm not disagreeing with Daniel, I'm agreeing with Daniel. That's why I'm quoting him. So go out, and it's hard work, because you're going, oh my goodness, you know, like... I gotta have a, I've got to have a view on Daniel. It's belt of truth time. You know? You've got to wrap your, gird your loins kind of thing and tuck all of the loose ends in. That's what the belt did. You reached down and grabbed your fighting garment, your, your tunic, your cloak. And you reached down, you grabbed it, and you tucked the loose end into your belt so that the enemy wouldn't have anything to grab onto. And that was the idea. That's what you did with your belt. You tucked in all the loose ends so the enemy didn't have anything to grab onto. One-to-one correspondence with what we need to be doing, not just with prophecy, but with every area of our life. Truth needs to dominate our loose ends so that Satan isn't picking us off with things we haven't thought about, haven't considered, haven't meditated on. And so that's why, you know, I have no opinion about the creation of the world. Well, if you can defend that, okay, that's one thing, maybe. If you can say, here's textually why, we just can't know. All right, well, talk to me. But if it's just a loose end and you haven't thought about it, someone's going to be grabbing for that. Someone is going to poke you right in your error. That's where they're going to be poking you, right there. And you're going to see that. The marketplace of ideas is a good place for people to start poking you right in your errors, and it makes you question the accuracy of the text. And here's a fourth of the Bible is prophecy, and we go, I have no opinion about that. Well, danger, Will Robinson. Somebody's going to start poking you right in that area. So with that in mind, a brief look at Matthew 24, and I've already like eaten up your time, but it's just kind of, and we'll, you guys want to sit and dwell on it a little bit more, we can talk about it more next week. Bill's going to be here, you can pepper him with all your questions, God bless Bill. But let's get into the text just a little bit, and I'll start to break it up for you and see what I see as structuring what's going on here, and then there's cool particulars, which I don't, we'll have, won't have time for this week, if you want to get into those, we can get into those, if you guys are like, yeah, prophecy, rock on, let's do it next week. Then we can do that if you guys are like, okay, that's fun. Um, you were wrong. Let's move on. <laughs> we still like it. Uh, then, then we can do that too. Um, just let me know. Uh, or Dad will just make a decision probably and tell me what I'm teaching on next week. Uh, but Daniel 9. Daniel 9 builds. That's a good word for Daniel 9. Daniel 9 is a, a passage on prophecy that builds. And it doesn't start with some vision of the future. Daniel 9 starts with, I'm going to pray 
because I think the 70 years are almost up, right? And so Daniel is praying about the end of 70 years of captivity. And he begins to pray for the end, repent of the sins of his people and pray for the end of 70 years of that captivity. Gabriel comes in response to the prayer of Daniel and says, you're praying about the 70 years of captivity. Let me give you a map of the future of your people. I'm not just going to tell you about the end of 70 years. I'm going to give you 70 times 7 years. And that's going to be the time of your people. You have these 70 times 7 years. And it's already come out that there's going to be a time of the Gentiles. And that kind of makes an appearance in Daniel 9. But what he's doing is saying, all right, you want to know about 70? I'll tell you about 70 times 7. Here's what's going to go down. And then he lists six things. 490 years are appointed for your people and your holy city. He gets right into it. The Jews and Jerusalem have 490 units of time. Whatever that is, 70 weeks, 70 weeks of years. Nothing happened in 490 weeks of any significance. So four weeks of years is generally accepted to be accurate. 490 years is an accurate take on what's going on here. And it's Daniel's people and Daniel's holy city have 490 weeks of years. And then he starts laying out six things that are going to happen. You know, seal up vision and prophet. You know, bring an end to, to sin. And, you know, six things, bang, laid out for you. In the next 490 years, the Jews in Jerusalem, these six things are going to happen. Let me, let me spell that out for you. The prince of the people who is going to come is going to, you know, on the wing of abomination, make desolate halfway through the seven body block. And then you get to these things, and after 69 weeks, but before the 70th week, these things happen. And, you know, he starts laying out a timeline for you of what's going to happen in the next 490 years for your people. I think this is very much what's going on in Matthew 24 and 25. You get into it, and it starts kind of in 23, obviously. And Jesus is just talking, it's not a broken sequence. But you get to the end of 23 and this passage on the hypocrisy of, of the leaders of Israel, and you get to the lament of Jesus on, what do you think, Tuesday? Is this Tuesday? I think this is Tuesday of Passion Week. He's leaving the temple for the last time, mind you. He is leaving the temple, doesn't go back. And he looks out over this, this people. In fact, Daniel's people and Daniel's holy city is exactly who he gets into. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Psalm 118, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now two things about this. First off, I think he's going to start to build. Because his disciples are going to say, Look at the temple. What's going on with this generation? He's like, I won't, even, I won't just tell you about this generation. I will tell you about the generation that sees my coming. I won't just tell you about the, the, this 70 AD. I will tell you about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think there's precedent 
for this kind of, I, will, I won't just tell you about the destruction of this generation because of the hypocrisy and rejection. I will tell you about the great tribulation of your people and how it all ends. And that's exactly what they want to know. And so I think it just, he builds it. He goes, here's what's happening, and here's, let me tell you about another generation. And I think that he does that with this, well, I'll get to that. And secondly, and this is tough right here for somebody who thinks that this, everything that he's going to say happened in 70 AD. He says, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. And Preterus goes, exactly. Everything ends with rejection. Jesus Christ comes back for his people and judges them. Your house has left you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me. Exactly. That's exactly what, that's how it ends. That's how it ends. That's what, that's what the Old Testament builds to. It ends right there, and it doesn't. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the preterist goes, well, in a general, I mean, if you want to say that kind of thing, what do you do? That's not how it ends. It's 70 AD. They blow him up. Scrape him into the sea. Well, except they really don't. And the Jews are still in Jerusalem. And the Pharisees are still in Jerusalem. And the Sanhedrin is still in Jerusalem. And they dig holes and have a rebellion in Jerusalem. And... So 70 AD doesn't end the Jewish presence in Jerusalem. I mean, the Sanhedrin still operates out of Jerusalem for another 60 years after that. So it gets a little touch and go there with what actually happened in 70 AD. But that's not, it's not a pessimistic end. All Israel is going to be saved, says Paul. You know, this is the coming back of Jesus for his people is a glorious thing. In fact, this weeping over Jerusalem is mapped by the weeping of the people because they have killed their Yahweh. This is Zechariah 10, right? Zechariah 10, 13. And it says, and actually, it, it, at the glorious return section in, in 29 and following, it, does, it, tell, it talks exactly about the mourning of the people. But it's everyone basically agrees that what he's getting at in that, and even here at the beginning, is... 12, isn't it? And it says in Zechariah 12, and it's Yahweh talking, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so they will look on me whom they have pierced. Me whom they have pierced. They will look on me. You ask me, who's talking there? Yahweh. God of Israel. Me whom you have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. Next verse. The land will mourn every family by itself. Next, next. Then you get into verse 13. In that day, the day that they mourn over the Jesus they've pierced, who they finally recognize as Yahweh, their God, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. It's not they mourn, they're sad, the end. And that day a fountain will be opened for sin and impurity. They will know me. They will finally see me. They will recognize me. They will, 
They will, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They will finally say, blessed is he who comes. This is the end of God's people and God's holy city, not rejection. That's trouble right from the get-go if you think 70 AD is end game. Uh, I really like that passage in Zechariah 12 and 13. It's a cool passage. And by the by, if you ever get, uh, have a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness who will tell you specifically that Jesus is not Jehovah, he is one of God's sons, you know, as we all, blah, blah. And you go to this verse in the New World Translation, it's not me. They will look on him whom they have pierced. A one. A one. One whom they have pierced. Yeah. Not what it says. You go into the Hebrew, first person personal pronoun. Me. And they just lie. They just flat lie to everybody in Jehovah's Witnesses and go, Oh, no, no, it's not me, even though it's clearly me in the original language. And Fiona was talking to him, took him to that passage, and it didn't say... Well, that's not what it says in our text. I wonder what it really says. Oh, we'll never know the end. I'm like, Shh, Hebrew, you want the Hebrew? I got it right here. <laughs> there it says, you're wrong. You're being lied to. Interesting. Uh, don't let him get away with it. Uh, and then... Uh, so those are, sorry, uh, the second thing I want to point out from this passage, he weeps over them and says, how I want to gather you under my wings, or as a chicken gathers her, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but instead you were not willing, so you're going to be left desolate. These are Daniel 9 terms straight up. It says that the prince of the people who is to come will put an end to sacrifices and on the wing of abomination will make desolate. Right? On the wing of abomination will make desolate. Wing, desolate, that's right here. These are very much... He's saying, Jesus is looking at his people in his holy city and saying, I want to draw you under my wings, but you were not willing and you chose desolation. And so you get into the Old Testament, and it's instead of Jesus' wings, they have the wing of abomination. They have the overspreading of abomination. Instead of the overspreading of Jesus, they willed the overspreading of abomination. Tragic. But very much in line with Daniel 9 and that timeline. That's what they're willing now, I think wing of abomination there in Daniel 9 means overspreading, not a portion of the temple or the pinnacle of the temple or anything. Because that word is used 109 times in the Old Testament and never refers to the temple once. So wing, probably overspreading, just like Jesus right here. We'll move on, we'll move a little quicker for the rest of it. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings, and there were several at the time that were in the complex. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So you've got this inter intercourse between Jesus and his disciples. They're asking him questions. He's responding to them. They point out the temple, and he says, Do you not see these things? Truly I say to you. And that becomes formulaic. He uses that exact same turn of the phrase again 
and verses 33 and 34. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is right at the door. When you see all these things, recognize that he's right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. So he's got this. You see these things, truly I say to you. The generation that sees these things, truly I say to you. And I think this is the real breakdown of the divide. I think this is the literary clue that there's a divide. I say to you, you're going to see these things. I say to that generation, you're going to see these things. And there's this divide. What you're going to see is tearing down the temple. And what you're going to see is the return of Christ. And you've got these us and them kind of distinction here. Very much wed together. But I think you've got this distinction of timeline. Truly I say to you, you're going to see this. Truly I say to you, you're going to see this. And secondly, this becomes really interesting. Jesus is walking away from the temple. He's leaving it. In fact, he's in there, he's talking, he's saying, you hypocrites, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. Basically, it's like Deuteronomy. You've got Matthew 5, the blessings. Matthew 23, the curses. And what's the final curse? You know, you will be kicked out of your land. Well, here, the final curse is, well, I'll just leave then. Very much Ezekiel 8, 9, and 10, the leaving of the glory of God from the temple. That's when the temple was abandoned by God in Ezekiel 8, 9, and 10. And then the people went into captivity. They just scattered over the planet. Here, same thing's happening. Jesus leaves the temple. You get to Matthew 24. He's made it to the Mount of Olives. He pauses, explains to them that he'll be back. Hey, I'm coming back, but I'm leaving. And then you flash over to a scene in Matthew 26, and sort of meanwhile, back at the temple, actually it's in the, the courtyard of the high priest, they're plotting to kill Jesus. And then where does Jesus go? He leaves the temple, stops at the Mount of Olives and said, I'll be right back. I'll be back. And then he goes into the house of a leper and is anointed. You know, that's where he goes. And I, that's, that's where he is. He's in the house. He's right here. That's where he is. He's not in the temple anymore. He paused, said, I'll be back, and he went into the homes. And that's what I think is one of the strongest evidence for me that when the Holy Spirit comes and floods the house, it's not the temple. They're just in some house, some upper room. I don't think it's the temple there. I think he's just elsewhere. I think the Holy Spirit is flooding back rooms and alleyways and homes and newly painted with glass on the floor kind of rooms. You know, that's where Jesus, that's where the Holy Spirit is. That's where he is. And meanwhile, back in the courtyard of the high priest, they're plotting to kill him. You know, that's kind of the movement you've got here. Um, at least that's why I see it. Uh, and then you get right into um, this question. And huge controversy, amazing, one verse, hundreds, thousands of pages have been written. How many questions are, are being asked here? When will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Is that two questions or three? And it becomes a huge issue. I'm not even sure if people know which side that is holding each issue down now. It used to be futurists, two questions... Preterist, three questions. Now it's just, you know, 
Buckshot. Yeah, it's two questions or three questions. I don't know. Uh, you break it down. He definitely has, like, when are these things going to happen? As in, and you actually, I was a little disappointed in uh, one commentator of his futurist says, it's definitely three questions. He addresses them in order. The first one, though, he only addresses in Luke, so let's go there first, and we'll come back to Matthew. And I went, whoa, uh, like, that's a bit of a stretch, I think. Like, like, is that what we do now? Like, I mean, yeah, definitely correspond with Luke, but Matthew definitely included this for a reason. And so, hard to say that, oh, for this, you go to Luke for that answer. That's rough. I don't know. Uh, so he's getting to, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? He gets into timing issues of the end, sign issues of the end. And so I'll lay down the chapter for you, and you can tell me how many questions there are. Um, and then he goes right into, and Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. That is not yet the end. And those, those few verses are indicative of what follows from 4 through 14. 4 through 14, here again, controversy, naturally. Why would anybody agree on anything? There wouldn't be anything to publish about. Everybody's got to have a unique doctoral dissertation, so they make a new position. So this is something. This is either, hey, this is what's happening now, before the end. Or, this is what happens in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Or, this is a summary statement of the whole tribulation, and then he gets down to the particulars. Those are your options, basically, among the camps, especially futurist camps. This is either what's going to happen in the gap, you know, before the tribulation. It's generally what happens in the tribulation, or it's what happens specifically in the first three and a half years. Because everybody, when they get into it, verses 15 through 28, that's the second half of the tribulation. You read Abomination of Desolation in 15, and you go back to midpoint of the week in Daniel, this seven-year week of time that people are being dealt with, the people of Israel being dealt with. That's the midpoint. That's when Jesus gets into it and says, you're going to know. Now you know. You see the Abomination of Desolation. You're not going to miss it. When you see what, what, what Daniel talked about, get out of town, get out of Dodge. Because there ain't enough room in this town for the Antichrist and you, basically. Get out of here. Head to the wilderness. Hit the hills. Do not stay here. And then he gives clear warnings, you know, hey, probably not the time to be having kids. Bless you if you're a nursing mother, you know. Bless you if it's on the Sabbath. Oh, bless you, you know. Bless you if it's a night. You know, you got to get out and you got to get out now. And you're going to know because it's the abomination of desolation. And that's talked about twice in the book of Daniel. One is right here in Daniel chapter 9 where he's getting at it and saying this is what's going to happen. And another time when there seems to be a clear reference to this Seleucid Greek dude named Antiochus IV who was kind of like this petty cartoon character guy who was so angry because the Romans told him what was what and said, you can't attack Egypt, so he goes back into Israel and just kills everyone <laughs> and desecrates their temple and makes it unusable. And whatever he does, he seems to have set up Zeus, 
right there in the Holy of Holies and sacrificed who knows what, probably a pig, and makes this place unusable. Whatever that was, it's going to be bad here as well. So he's getting it. So what, what about before that? I think so. There's a strong case we made this the first three and a half years. I think the gappers are really on to something because we're like, yeah, this gap. I think it probably is more sum summary. There's a lot of precedent for that. This is a summary statement. Here's what it's going to look like at the end. So you're asking about timing issues. I'll tell you what it looks like. It's going to look like this. But hey, a couple things. Don't let people mislead you. Do not be frightened. And hey, don't let your love grow cold. Right there. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Verse 12. Don't be that. Don't be that guy. Just because there's lawlessness and there's fear and there's all that, don't let your love grow cold. Don't be frightened. Don't be misled. I think it's a summary of the end. And it's not specifically of the gap period, but this is what it's going to look like when it gets close. And earlier in Matthew, Jesus got really into the Pharisees' faces and said, signs of the times, guys, signs of the times. What's going to happen? You should know what the end, what Jesus' coming looks like. The Messiah is going to come. you got plenty to lean into when it comes to what does that look like. It looks like, I don't know, a baby born in Bethlehem, you know? A star, maybe? That'd be cool. There's a star and a baby. You know, that, that would be, that'd be indicative. Uh, you know, there's prophecy after prophecy of what this is going to look like, and somehow you're going to miss this? Not an option. I think that's what's going on here. here. This is what it's going to look like for this generation. This generation that sees these things and also sees the return of Christ. And so he gets into... 15 through 28, and it's just that. He starts quoting from Daniel. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken through the Daniel the prophet, this is the great tribulation, the midpoint, the time of Jacob's trouble, whatever you want to call it. This insight comes from the book of Daniel, middle of the week, abomination of desolation. And he starts laying out, get out of town. And then they ask about, what is the sign of your coming? Immediately after... Immediately after the tribulation of those days, sun will be darkened, moon will not give its light, stars will fall from the sky, powers of heaven will be shaken, sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, tribes of the earth will mourn, Zechariah 12, those are Israel mourning right there, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. That's what it's going to look like. Daniel 7, Son of Man coming in the sky. And they're given this, this is what you're looking for. And this is how it builds. It's going to be rough now. And here's how it ends. Really bad. And then, beyond belief, good. Really sketchy brief there. But, just so you know... And then he flows right into regarding the timing of his coming. 32 through 41 is right into timing. Hey, you guys know what a fig tree looks like. You know what to expect. Now you guys know what to expect in this area. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Very much 
Jewish wedding terminology there. Son doesn't know when the house is finished and he comes back kind of thing. Very much so. And then 42 and following all the way through 2530, you've got four parables about being ready. Clearly this becomes the emphasis. Be ready, be ready, be ready. Now, is this the emphasis of the people of Israel in the first and second half of the tribulation and that time approaching that? Yes. I mean, I, yes, I think so. It's just too much. Israel, this is your end. This is what's coming. I'm leaving. I'm pointing back to the temple. I'm telling you I'm going to be back. I've got to go get into the houses now because that's where I'm headed. But you guys in Israel, you guys be ready. I think there's that. There's that element. But I don't think it's exclusive. I mean, there's a nice wedding there. Are, you, are we as well supposed to be ready? Well, yeah, definitely. Does it need to look like this? Yeah. This is the kind of things you should be doing as well. But primary audience, maybe not so much you. You know? Not overly applicable? Not at all. Very applicable. Very much get ready. And I think here's an interesting insight maybe into one of these parables. Ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom. And we always look at this and go, yeah, they're with the bridal party waiting for them to come down the street. Maybe. Oftentimes, virgins were young ladies were entertainment at the wedding itself. They would, you know, they were the dancers or whatever. And young women were the dancers at the wedding. So the bridegroom would go get his bride. And then when he came back, the entertainment was sitting and waiting when the bridegroom was bringing his bride back with him at his coming. Kind of a cool way of looking at that. Maybe it's... There's a correlation there between the son goes and gets the bride and then he's sort of, they're with him and he comes back and the people are supposed to be ready. Maybe that's more indicative of, in either case, it's just a parable of being ready, but that might be kind of a timeline kind of thing. Like, yeah, he goes and gets his bride and they come back and you've got to be ready. Maybe, because that would align nicely with a pre-tribulational rapture in which... Jesus goes, meets his bride, they have a big feast, and then they're coming back, and uh, the party's got to be ready. And don't let your love grow cold because it waited seven years. And then 25, 31 through 46, uh, you've got the judgment and the dividing of the people, and now you've got most pre-tribulationals telling you, yeah, that's the judgment, that's not the final judgment. This is God coming back and bringing people Judging between those alive after the tribulation about who's going to go into the millennial reign and who's not. And one of the strongest arguments for this is Jesus deciding who's going to go into the millennial reign and who's not, and you don't want to be one of those who's not, is that there's in fact three groups in this parable, in this description, in this scene. There is the sheep who go in, you know, come into thy father's kingdom. There's the goats. I never knew you. Depart from me. And then there's my brothers. Whatever you did for one of the least of my brothers, you did for me. Who are these guys? Ah, oh, you know, poor people. Israel. If you blessed Israel, welcome into the kingdom. If you didn't, I never knew you. We've got to deal with the fact that there's brothers out there and we're not sure what to do with them. Um, is that also very applicable to how you need to act in the time now? Yes, but 
it has specifically to do with how you treat Israel. Now, I have a professor who wraps it all up by saying, your intimacy with God is directly proportionate to the way you treat Israel now. I think he's overstepped the mark. He also says that every denomination of church that goes liberal begins by dropping their support of Israel. I think he's probably off the mark there too, but he might be close. Um, the fact that those two things happen together might not mean that they're necessarily connected. Sort of uh, post hoc ergo proctor hoc, you know what I mean. After, therefore, because of, not necessarily the case. Uh, I mean, that was an episode of West Wing, and that's the only reason I know that phrase. Great show, though. Uh, but yeah, there is a sketch. Um, details, I would be interested in your questions. But I think we should probably like get food and then go to that. Is, that. is that acceptable? If you guys have questions particularly, you could have that. Or do you want to like, actually, no, let's just ask a few questions first. Because I probably won't know the answer anyhow, so it's going to be brief. Uh, or particulars that I left out that would be really helpful. Let's go ahead and go do it, and, uh, and then we'll get food, because that way we'll just have it going. We'll just roll. Um, or we can ask questions, and you can be prepared next week to answer. Oh, that could be, yeah, because we are, we're, we're, we're into it. Uh, yeah, actually, that's not a bad idea. If you wanted to deal with specific questions next week, is that all right? Would that be all right? Give me a little bit of time to ask Anne. <laughs> I um, found it interesting on verse 31, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. So this is clearly after the tribulation, right before. Yeah, well, I mean... Immediately after the tribulation, I mean, the timing's right there for you. Yeah, and um, in fact, the first timing phrase, when you see, is verse 15, and then verse 29 gives another timing after these things. But there's not any timing phrases before that. Now, there might be in that, th that you have this, timeline of things that are going to happen, like hearing of wars, then nation will rise against nation, then various places, uh, famines, and then earthquakes, then you'll have persecution, then you'll have uh, brother will betray brother. I mean, that might be timing. I, mean, I don't know. Maybe there's a timeline. Some people take that as a strict timeline. These, this is what's going to happen in this order. Rumors of wars, wars, tribulation, famine, earthquake, persecution, brother betraying brother. I mean, that's how it happens. Interesting. I don't know. I see it more summarily, summarily, but maybe that's the timeline of the first half of the tribulation. If you want to go with that. Well, we have to agree that earthquakes have always been. Yeah. Famines have always been. Sure. So maybe it's just an increase. It increases. Up until you gotta point out the facts. Yeah, like there's been there's been famines, there's been earthquakes, but is this a series of events that happens in the first half? Does this line up really nicely with with revelation and and judgment? I don't think it's point for point. So I see it more as a summation. It's going down. Um, whew, that's twenty four.
brutal. Good stuff. Uh, let's do that. Let's let's do questions. You guys are like bursting with questions, and you're like, I don't really want to ask him right now. Let's do let's uh, let's uh, let's do questions. Dad will send out an email uh, tomorrow and say, let's get some questions together, and then we may can pool our resources a bit and do with questions next week. Let's do that. That'd be fun. Um, you have to respond to that. Then you can't just be like, whatever. I don't actually. No, you have to. Like you have to. Or you can't come. <laughs> You can't be an idealist. Can't you? you can't. Like, well, you can. You can say, can I be an idealist? That can be your question. <laughs> that can be your question. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know the answer. At least we can come. We can come. Yeah. It'll be in your, like, chips on the table kind of thing.